Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. I'm Britt Long, and I'm joined by Manny Singh. We have four great posts to talk about today. The first one is Diagnosing Cardiogenic Shock, published on Monday, February 3rd. This post looks at the diagnosis of cardiogenic shock based on history, exam, labs, and imaging. Manny, why is this post so important? This is such an important condition to diagnose as quickly as we can. The key points for your next shift is that cardiogenic shock is primarily caused by an acute myocardial infarction, occurring 70% of the cases, and is a focus of most studies, but other causes should also be considered. Other causes are shown in Table 1 of the posts, but include myocarditis, cardiomyopathy, aortic insufficiency, and many others. Mortality is pretty severe, around 60%. History and exam should focus on evaluating for hypoperfusion and pulmonary congestion and then quickly addressing them. JVP is an important physical exam component for the diagnosis of cardiogenic shock and is associated with increased mortality. Ultrasound is super helpful with the rush exam having a sensitivity and specificity of 89% and 97% respectively. If you're an ultrasound Jedi, calculations of EF, cardiac output, and cardiac index through LVOT VTI is the next level. Figure 5 in the post gives a great summary and algorithm that I've used to review with my residents. Britt, let's briefly review how we can manage these cardiogenic shock patients once we hone in on the diagnosis. What's your pathway? First, get a 12-lead ECG while you're evaluating the ABCs. As you mentioned, an acute myocardial infarction not only is the major cause of cardiogenic shock, but it's also rapidly treatable. These patients usually won't have subtle acute myocardial infarctions. They'll typically have large anterior STEMIs, though inferior STEMI with extension into the RV is also common. Don't forget to look closely for elevations in AVR, which represent significant left main coronary artery or left anterior descending artery disease. Once you have diagnosed the STEMI, get your cath team on the phone immediately. Opening of the culprit vessel is the intervention most likely to save the patient. Unfortunately, thrombolytics aren't very effective in STEMI with cardiogenic shock. These patients have intense thrombolytic resistance, probably due to marginal drug delivery to the site where it's needed most. The shock registry found that thrombolytics did not significantly change mortality. Now Manny, how do we go about managing their airway if needed? Excellent question. Patients with cardiogenic shock will have severe respiratory distress. Unlike patients with acute decompensated heart failure, they often will not tolerate non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, such as BiPAP or CPAP, and will require emergent intubation. Unfortunately, these patients are challenging to intubate as they have all three of the HOP killers as discussed by Scott Weingart, which include hypotension, hypoxia, and acidosis. The big critical piece are maximizing pre-intubation hemodynamics by either giving them small fluid boluses, push-dose pressors, or IV pressors, and pre-oxygenating with head-up position, as well as continuing oxygenation during intubation with apneic oxygenation. All this helps in successfully intubating your patient with the longest possible safe apnea time. Britt, how do you address perfusion of these patients? While addressing airway, breathing, and getting an ECG to aid with the diagnosis, you have to address circulation and improve perfusion to the brain and coronary vessels. And that brings us to vasoactive medications. The optimal agent would be one that increases coronary artery perfusion, has minimal effects on heart rate, decreases afterload and myocardial oxygen demand, and enhances cerebral perfusion pressure. Unfortunately, there just isn't an agent that does all of these things. 
The gut instinct of many physicians is to reach for an ionotrope like dobutamine. However, caution must be practiced here. Dobutamine has both beta-1 and beta-2 agonist activity, which may augment cardiac output, but will also cause vasodilation. The balance between output and peripheral vasodilation leads to the classic teaching that one-third of patients will drop their blood pressure, one-third will have no change in blood pressure, and one-third will have increased blood pressure. Unfortunately, there's no good way to predict which patients will have which response. This can be combined by initiating a vasopressor first and then adding the ionotrope when blood pressure has become relatively stable, shooting for a map of 65 millimeters of mercury. There is no optimal vasopressor for this indication. The ACC and AHA recommend the following. Those with systolic blood pressure 70 to 100 without signs of shock starting dobutamine, those with systolic blood pressure 70 to 100 with signs of shock starting dopamine, and those with systolic blood pressures less than 70 starting norepinephrine. I think a lot of physicians have issues with dopamine. I really like norepinephrine as a first-line presser in this situation. An RCT of patients with undifferentiated shock showed that norepinephrine was superior to dopamine, specifically in the subgroup of patients with cardiogenic shock. Although it's recommended that norepinephrine be given through a central line, you can use a good peripheral line while central axis is being obtained. Epinephrine is also another good option as it can increase cardiac contractility as well as increase the MAP. Manny, we don't cover intraaortic balloon pumps much, but is there a role for these devices in these patients? In theory, balloon pump placement makes sense. It should increase myocardial oxygen supply by increasing coronary artery perfusion and decreasing myocardial oxygen demand. The largest study of balloon pump and cardiogenic shock was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012. In this prospective randomized unblinded trial, the authors demonstrated no mortality benefit to balloon pump placement. This trial had many flaws, but challenges the potential benefits of balloon pump placement. Our next post release on February 17 looks at prostatitis. Prostatitis is an acute or chronic infection of the prostate. The key to diagnosis is just considering the disease. Patients with recent urologic instrumentation, immunocompromise, diabetes, or anatomic abnormalities are at higher risk for prostatitis. While we think E. coli is the most common microbe involved, keep in mind chlamydia and gonorrhea in sexually active patients. Patients with acute prostatitis may have systemic signs of infection, back pain, and abdominal pain. The prostate is usually very tender, edematous, and boggy on digital rectal exam, with a sensitivity of 63% and specificity of 77% for diagnosis. Other sources report more than 95% of patients have prostate tenderness on exam. Now, we often rely on urinalysis for diagnosis, but the problem with this is that prostatitis is a clinical diagnosis. UA and urine culture may be negative, so you need to take this test in the context of the bigger clinical picture. Treatment includes antibiotics, typically for an extended period of time. Patients with sepsis, poor follow-up, acute urinary retention, or concern for other infections such as endocarditis need to be admitted. Complications can also be severe, including prostatic abscess. CT imaging can be used to evaluate for prostatic abscess, which should be considered in patients who do not symptomatically improve with antibiotic therapy. I recommend looking at the post for antibiotic recommendations, but a longer course is recommended compared to your standard UTI therapy with outpatient follow-up. Our ECG pointers posed by Lloyd Tenenbaum from your shop looked at stent thrombosis. 
These are important to consider when a patient presents after a PCI with the identical EKG distribution of the prior MRI. When PCI is done with a bare metal stent, approximately 25% can be completely occluded at 14 days post-PCI, and this is despite high doses of heparin and other antithrombotic medications. There were several strategies attempted to decrease thrombosis including using high-pressure balloon expendable stents and heparin-impregnated stents. They were able to decrease the rate of occlusion to around 3%, but with increasing doses of antithrombotic medications, rates of hemorrhagic complications increased from 3 to 4% to 7 to 13%. Luckily, in the early 1990s, several studies looked at combining aspirin and ticlidopine, and from those studies, dual antiplatelet therapy was born and a game changer. Current stents are drug-eluting stents, which are stents that send out or elude drugs that prevent inflammation and scar tissue in the coronary vessels. This helps to prevent stent thrombosis and failure. Current stents can even be bioresorbable, where over time the body will completely reabsorb the stent. Currently using dual antiplatelet therapy in modern stents, the rate of stent thrombosis, 9 to 12 months after stent placement, is less than 1%. Our final post comes from the Unlocking Common ED Procedure Series, and this looks at central venous catheter placement. The great thing about this post is it has a downloadable PDF you can use for quick reference. When it comes to selecting a site for placement, there is no single best access site for a central venous catheter, and you might find yourself in situations where any of the three sites might be necessary. Subclavian access has an overall lower rate of infection and thrombosis, but an increased risk of pneumothorax. Femoral access was initially thought to have a higher infection rate with the advantages of being distant from the thorax and an easy site of compression if a hematoma develops. More recent data suggests there's no increased risk in catheter-related infections with femoral access compared with the other sites. It may also be the right choice in patients with suspected coagulopathy. Internal jugular access has a relatively lower risk of infection as well as iatrogenic pneumothorax under ultrasound guidance. In patients who aren't imminently dying, Ultrasound-guided IJ axis is often the preferred site of entry. If using ultrasound, always keep the tip of the needle in view when advancing to avoid injury to underlying anatomic structures. Once you have the needle within the vein and you've obtained flow in the syringe, decrease the angle and recheck flow to assure the needle is still within the vessel. Brisk, even near pulsatile blood flow can be seen when placing an internal jugular vein central line in the setting of certain pathologies like heart failure, or cardiogenic shock due to a severely elevated central venous pressure. In this situation, careful confirmation of the wire within the jugular vein should be performed with ultrasound. If resistance is felt while advancing the wire, stop advancing, decrease the needle angle, and reattempt. If you still have resistance, remove the wire and reassess flow with the syringe. The ED can be a difficult place to maintain sterility. If there's any concern regarding the sterility of the central line, just inform the admitting team for follow-up care and rechecks of the site. That rounds out our summary of the key EM docs posts. Thanks for joining us on our podcast and stay tuned for our next episode where we talk about SJS and TEN, the 5-minute rapid neuro hand exam, and penile injuries. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.